welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And we are here with no guest today. Just these, uh, just these two OG Antifada secret soldiers. The gruesome twosome. Indeed. Um, and we will be getting to an interview uh, in the second half of the program with uh, some workers from No Evil Foods, a vegan food company that turned out to be uh, actually somewhat evil, despite their name. Oh, wow. It turns out that um, yuppie, petty bourgeois business people uh, can actually be anti-workers, right, sometimes? News at 11. Did you read that crazy um, article in the New York Times? Or no, it was in The Cut about the uh, eco-yogi slumlords? Oh, I think I saw that, but I did not read it. I read it. It's like the perfect example of this where you have these nice, crunchy white people who, you know, are doing good for the community. They're pillars of their particular neighborhood. They're doing eco. They're doing yoga. They're doing green. They're doing crunchy. And as it turns out, not only are they horrible business people, but they're also ripping people off for rent and products. Oh, yeah. Those are the people who named their kids Zapata, yes. right? <laughs> what is it? Because No Evil Foods also named their sausage after the Zapatistas. <laughs> what is it with these hypocritical white motherfuckers and appropriating Zapatista language? I mean, beyond the even the, the appropriation, it's absurd because it's it's essentially an aesthetic, right? Mm. So there's these floating signifiers of Zapatistas, the Dalai Lama, uh, I don't know, um, Joe Strummer, all of these different things that just float around. And if you put them together, it's supposed to be something, I guess, hip and cool and progressive. But as we know, most of what go what passes for progressive in this country is nothing, nothing close to that. And of course, they the the crux of the article is they got uh, a huge campaign against them by tenants' rights activists because they showed up to their tenants' uh, apartment in the middle of the night and threw them out on the street <laughs> in wow. the middle of a pandemic. S M D H. Yeah. So very much, very much going to be a theme of this uh, interview uh, in the episode today. Mm -hmm. Uh, but before we get to that, we do want to talk a little bit about some hot button issues. We got news coming in the in on the wires. Uh, but even before that, we would like to thank all of you and announce that we have, of course, made our goal of 1,917 patrons. And we will be sending out personally addressed uh, cards, postcards to everybody, specially designed ones by Radix Media, a worker's own print cooperative. We'll be signing them ourselves and sending them out shortly. If you have not yet given us your address and you are a new patron, you can email antifatamindset at gmail.com, subject line 1917. Throw us your address and we'll be getting those out in the next couple of weeks. Boom. So what are we talking about today? Um, well... I don't want to attract the attention of the cops too hard, but uh, it seems like a very topical topic, and that is big fee, violence. Oh, yes, violence. Uh, we've seen quite a bit of violence in the past week or so, um, most of it coming from the state or the right. Uh, particularly the right has uh, caught some headlines, although, you know, the right and the state are fairly intertwined at this point um you had an item you wanted to start with yeah so this happened just yesterday so there's not a lot of details but 
apparently the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, which we had talked about a few episodes back with Scott from the L.A. podcast. L.A.S.D. S.M.D. The L.A.S.D. Sheriff's Department, very, very right wing, reactionary and violent organization to the extent that the Sheriff's Department has gangs uh, inside of the street gangs, essentially inside the force. And apparently um, one of them is called the executioners and you can only be tagged in. You'd only get the ink and get the tattoo if you literally have a body on you. There was a deposition today by a whistleblower that said that the young Latino kid, Andreas uh, Gordado, uh, had been shot by a prospective member of this LASD police gang called the executioners. So, the the person's the person's not named yet because this had just happened, but apparently yesterday, August thirty first, the sheriff's department uh, killed another man. They killed a black man who had been, I guess, riding his bicycle. They were pulling him over for a bike violation. They claim that allegedly, in the course of this, an altercation broke out. They claim that allegedly, a gun fell out of the guy's bag or in a bundle of clothing that he apparently had in his hands while punching a, a deputy in the face. It's very, very unclear and it's very sketchy because the LASD has been documented through whistleblowers and deposition to plant evidence on suspects up into including guns. So it sounds like to me, again, we don't know all the facts that this is another potential police murder of an unarmed black man in the United States and protesters are out there in Los Angeles uh, as we speak. Now, compare and contrast that to a guy by the name of Kyle Rittenhouse, who we all probably know by now is a 17-year-old white kid who's not from Kenosha, Wisconsin. He's from the next state over. But he went into town last week with a assault rifle and ended up getting into some sort of altercation and killing uh, two Black Lives Matter protesters and wounding a third. This, uh, you've probably seen the very graphic videos out there. Um, it was obviously a, a horrific, violent, uh, destructive, and sad incident. What makes it especially galling is to compare how this man in Los Angeles had been treated to Kyle Rittenhouse, who fully armed with a uh, assault rifle strapped around him, uh, was able to kill two people and then walk calmly through the police lines, fully armed, and not even be apprehended at that point in time. So I think there's really no more graphic comparison of how there's two different systems of law enforcement in this country, and there's two different ways that violence is portrayed or understood and accepted in this country than between Kyle Rittenhouse and this uh, black man in Los Angeles. So a few things about this disgusting tragedy. Um, Let's... Let's dig into the reactions from the left and the right, and then we can do a little bit of our analysis. Or I should say the center and the right, because, uh, you know, there is no media left in this country. Yeah, exactly. So let's see. Trump went on television and said um, he did not condemn the shooter. Yeah, he might have paid lip service to like violence in general being bad. But he was like, look, this guy was in big trouble. He probably would have been killed. They were going after him with a skateboard, blah, blah, blah. Um, I just want to debunk that for a second because, uh, as many of you may know, uh, but, you know, perhaps some of you don't, and it's not apparent from watching the the primary video that's been going around. Um, 
at the time that this video starts and this guy's being pursued by two uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, he had already shot one person. So he is an active shooter at this point in time uh, on the loose. And the guy who hit him with a skateboard was attempting to disarm him and stop him from hurting more people. When he got shot in the head. Right. Right. So this was an act of not just self-defense, but defending other people going after him the way that they did. And really, it was, I think, quite heroic on their part. And unfortunately, they were they were killed for it. Um, So then we had Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, going on television with, uh, you know, bootlicker Dana Bash and refusing to condemn the shooting. He calls it a tragedy. And then he emphasizes that it's pretty much the Democrats' fault for not sending in the National Guard. And this is a narrative we've been seeing all over the right, all all over right-wing media and the people who appear on it, saying, you know, it's very unfortunate, of course, that this violence is happening. However, um, what else can you expect when you keep the cops from doing your from doing their jobs when these democrat mayors refuse to send in the national guard um vigilantes are naturally going to take it upon themselves to defend private property and that is the primary thing that they are uh that that's the line that they're pursuing now do you think in this uh gun addled uh racist trump supporters head do you think defending private property was the first thing on his mind when he got a ride from his mom into Kenosha and packed his gun? I doubt that it was. Uh, I think we'll never really know what was going through his head, I guess, until a trial. But I don't think he was going out and saying to himself, this looting and arson is destroying private property and I'm a defender of capitalist property relations. Right. <laughs> like, I think private property uh, and capitalist property relations certainly play a role in all this. But I do not believe that they were his conscious motivation to commit this shooting. I think he was just horny to kill uh, leftists and black people and the overlapping group thereof. He had been a uh, been through some cheap ass bullshit like cadet program for like little baby pigs. It's like literally like a thing. Piglets. Yeah. Where they send a high school student will go in and like play cop and and do all sorts of cop maneuvers and squeal and fucking roll around in the mud or whatever the fuck they do. So this kid had wanted in his mind, obviously, to become a police officer. And here he is at 17 years old, not even fully grown, um, itching to get thrown into this situation and act as a, you know, little petty tyrant and throw his weight around. And the cops were all too happy to let this guy and others do that, right? Because we saw on video, they appear to be tossing them bottles of water, say, thanks for all that you're doing. They actually herded the militia groups and the protesters closer together and then stood back and let them do their thing. Because as of now, the cops aren't... uh, I don't think that they could get away with slaughtering protesters en masse. Maybe that will change. But as of now, uh, it seems like the, uh, the the right-wing militia groups, those are the people where the gloves are really off and um, don't necessarily need to follow the laws against murder. Yeah, I mean... I mean, obviously, they're still going to get in trouble for murder, but does anyone think that these people will be held accountable in any way, shape, or form? Well, the, the police officers certainly won't, the cops who are working with these right-wing uh, mil- militia groups and militants. I think that... I mean, this gets us to why I want to talk about political violence, right? Because we could sit here for the next half hour and do, like, a blow-by-blow of the video that everyone's seen from Kenosha. We could talk about how Kyle Rittenhouse was breaking the law 
by being under the age of 18 and bringing an open rifle to a protest, how he had crossed state lines, blah, blah, blah. I'm doing the jerk off motion, uh, yeah. by the way. You guys can't see me, uh, but I'm doing it. We could talk about the parenting. We could talk about the ideology. We could talk about the right wing media. We could talk about gun control and how we need control. some common sense gun control bipartisan legislation. We could talk about all of that. But what I think it's important for us as pro-revolutionaries, as anti-capitalists, it's important for us to look at this through a kind of broader lens and understand that what we've seen here and then what we saw in Portland uh, a little bit after that, we don't know the details of uh, this Patriot Prayer asshole getting shot and killed on the streets of Portland. Yeah, but negative shout outs to the New York Times for saying describing Patriot Prayer as a, uh, a group that promotes traditional Christianity and small government, I believe, is sure, what they yeah. said. Because, you know, those are the defining factors of armed right-wing militia groups, right? And the Proud Boys are an athletic association or something, right? So, like, y- 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 we saw what happened in Portland, too, and it's clear that, it's not definite, but it's clear that Something that looks like a tit-for-tat cycle of violence is rising right now in this country. And so if you don't look at this, what happened in Kenosha, through the frame of a murder trial, if we look at it as a sort of social barometer, as a way for us to understand where we are right now, where we're heading, and how we could potentially confront this and understand it, that'll be much more valuable because... Political violence obviously has been around for thousands of years. You know, it's one of the earliest types of human activity, for better or for worse. And we've been seemingly pretty fortunate for the last 30 or 40 years coming out of the 60s and 70s and early 80s where there were a ton of bombings and assassinations and riots in Kent State where protesters were shot. There was a lot of political violence in this country up until the 70s or 80s. We've been fortunate to not live under that sort of regime you know people don't get shot as often blah 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 we just haven't seen it for the last 30 or 40 years so it seems like this is coming back uh in a serious way political violence is back (laughs) back back it's back back in a big way Um, it's back baby uh coke is deader than dead political violence (laughs) is back in a big way yeah so maybe let's go through some of the explanations that have been offered to us and then broaden out our lens Using the power of historical materialism. How yeah, does that sound? Sure. But before we even do that, though, um, I want to make something clear because it only appeared as though political violence had dropped off the map right around the 1980s. But I think oh, yeah. <laughs> I think what we could see and this is very much implicates Biden. This very much implicates Trump, who was writing the Central Park Five advertisements asking for them to get the death penalty. It implicates all of the politicians in the country. 94 um, crime bill, baby. All of that mass incarceration, the increase in policing, uh, the absolute decimation of especially black and black and brown working class neighborhoods in this country by this autonomized, militarized police force. That is political violence right we don't we haven't we haven't always seen it right we haven't always understood it there hasn't been a national discussion about how the state should enact political violence on surplus populations but there has been one-sided political violence happening in this country for all this time what is the difference all of a sudden the difference is that people are fucking sick and tired especially since ferguson and now since george george floyd was murdered 
political violence has turned on its head and it's now a tit for a tat. It's Black Lives Matter protesters and their allies, working class people in communities rising up and trying to fight back against this political violence and also and often using things like looting, arson, property destruction, and let's be honest, street fighting against right-wing thugs and others in order to fight back against the political violence they're facing. Yeah, uh, but let's be totally clear because despite being literally and figuratively outgunned by both the right and obviously the state, um, leftists are not out there shooting people. No. That is something that the right does. That is something that the police do. Um, maybe there are people who think that the left should shoot back, but I don't think we're ever going to come out on top in that kind of a scenario. Yeah, yeah. Um, agreed. I, this is not... This is uh, The Antif- Antifada might have a uh, spectacular name for the podcast, but we're not advocating... Uh, Going out and doing Dermer shit out there. No. People remember Dermer. And I think there is a good reason why folks like even the Socialist Rifle Association who advocate having an armed left, um, they don't want to use it for the purpose of a gunfight. Right. Because they know that we are going to lose really badly in a gunfight. Also, the left takes violence more seriously than the right does, as we should. We're more humane. And I think literally. that is a good thing that we should not abandon in our haste to get revenge on the people who have hurt us um i think even even the idea the the sra idea that um like when i was speaking with faye eckler about it that uh, the the armed left serves uh, primarily as a deterrent i i'm even pretty ambivalent about that honestly Mm. she made some pretty good arguments but you know we just saw a situation in austin where a leftist or a Black Lives Matter activist, I don't know that he identified as a leftist explicitly, was open carrying um, just because, you know, it's his right to do that in that state. And it's arguable that um, the right winger who shot him took that as an opening to use his gun. Now, are they going to do that whether or not the left is armed? Probably. But I would hate to see us get into a kind of arms race where um, it, it just escalates from there. Yeah, so I agree. And, the, you know, this wave of political violence that's been happening to us, you know, to working class communities has now seen a counter. And our counter, as you said, shouldn't be and isn't for left wing people to go around, Black Lives Matter people to go around with assault rifles and executing people and shooting up right wing demonstrations or shooting up cops. Again, even our methods and our strategy is different because what does the left believe in? It, le- it believes in mass direct action and mass struggle. So our tools are always about building solidarity and, and, and bringing people together for a common fight and a common cause. And when you start to get into, you know, acts of lone wolf terrorism or things of that sort, you're kind of off the reservation at that point. Hey, now. Oh, no, I used the tropes, tropes, tropes. <laughs> you put it. You put a I, quarter in the trope jar right now, my friend. Nick Estes taught me, taught us never to use that God. very, very derogatory uh, phrase. And just we'll leave it in just so people can shame me and also so that I can live with that shame and, and never do it again. On These thi- like so much of so much idiomatic language I in know. English is like actually I don't even want to say problematic because that's like a dumb phrase. People, it's like it's fucking racist. Yeah. It, like it's in our heads I know. and we don't even realize I it. I couldn't think of another term. You for think it. you're just using a normal phrase. <laughs> if you're if you're 
going out with guns and thinking about just whacking people randomly on the streets, you're like not part of what we're trying to do. That's what I meant. That's what I meant. Fair enough. <laughs> so um, I think this might be a good intro. Well, you know what? Let's assess. Let's assess the threat level first, shall yeah. we? Because when we first started the show, I'll say, you know, a couple few years ago at this point. The joke was about Antifa super soldiers, right? It seemed absurd in this sort of Baroque um, escalation, kind of false escalation of political tensions in this country for chuds and conservatives to be talking about, like, hordes of Antifas going into suburbs and burning them down. But now that's, like, the mainstream. We have this fucking (laughs) conversation every day. Like, Antifa super soldiers is, like, the main boogeyman, uh, you know, not just in the media, but fucking the Justice Department. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, I believe Bill Barr said that he was going to go after these uh, Antifa protesters using the full extent of the law. Mm. I think Rico might have been bandied about. Awesome. And we went from uh, busloads of Antifas in black being sent around the country by George Soros to now, apparently, according to Trump, Antifa planes. There oh are boy. Antifas filling up entire planes wearing all black and uh, bringing, I don't know, fucking locks and socks with quarters in them and those big kind of uh, clown punchy bags where the, the big thing extends and like a punch uh, 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 boxing glove hits somebody. I don't know what what the mm. fuck that's all Military about. grade milkshakes. Yeah, that's right. You just like drop them right out of the bomber plane, you know, like <laughs> Everyone is all <laughs> sticky. You can't do shit when you're that sticky. See, you gotta go home that, and take a shower. <laughs> because that actually wouldn't kill people. It's pretty funny, actually. It's kind of a good idea. Yeah. Nonviolent direct action. <laughs> exactly. A nonviolent direct action gets the goods. That's Although, right. you know, some of those people might have. Uh, well, you know what? We know it's not violent because all of these chuds, they're like beautiful, big, beautiful whites. So they have no lactose intolerance. Right. There's really, it's it's just good, clean fun, it's, folks. It's or o- sticky fun. Anyway. It's only it's it's only the rare case where somebody like Andy No is susceptible to milkshakes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it knocks him out and gives him brain damage. That's right. So I guess we kind of went over this on our fascism episode. But yeah, this, I think this ties together nicely it's, uh, it's important to be able to assess the threat level of the far right in these scenarios. Um, I think we we don't want to get it twisted. Like we said that the far right uh, as a political force is fairly weak and disorganized at this point. And I believe that is true. Um, They since Charlottesville, certainly we spoke about how they uh, they really lost a lot of steam. That doesn't mean that they are not a threat to individuals out there. That doesn't mean that there are not still people out there who uh, are willing and able to hurt and kill uh, leftists and protesters. Yeah, they're, they're, we've talked about how um, Charlottesville was a huge defeat for what they were trying to rebrand as, which mm-hmm. is the alt-right. But just because uh, we, an- just because Antifa super soldiers beat them in Charlottesville and it was a huge egg on their face and they lost all momentum after that, doesn't mean that the same social forces, the same conditions that produce these white supremacist uh, street violent thugs uh, isn't going to continue mm-hmm. to produce people because it wasn't about Richard Spencer. It was about the forces behind him. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to have spectacular right wing demonstrations with thousands of them to know that that's happening behind the scenes every single day in America, especially with right-wing militias and other people working directly with the cops like we saw. Yeah, and just because they are in uh, 
really there's there's no danger of these people overthrowing the government no. and establishing like a fascist white nation however as previously discussed maybe they don't need to do that when enough of their politics and ideas are reflected in the existing power structures as they currently are exactly you did not need in the south under jim crow um the sheriff to extra in an extrajudiciary fashion uh execute uh, black people who stepped out of line. You had the KKK that did that at night, who was often the same members as the police department, but who went out in an extrajudicial fashion, uh, a paramilitary fashion, in order to enact the violence that the police wanted to do, but they, they had to outsource to others. It was very, very similar to, to the South under Jim Crow and the KKK. So yeah, right-wing terror and police force go hand in hand in America, whether that's the genocide of Native Americans, whether that's slave catchers, whether that's Jim Crow. This is just a continuation of that same process as mm -hmm. it ex has existed. Yeah. So when you look at Trump blaming it on the Democrats who won't send in the National Guard, um, you look at Biden blaming it on Trump for, you know, being the first violent president of all time. <laughs> right. uh, I think we Trump, can see our first violent president. that uh, there are ridiculous people on both sides, folks. <laughs> Many sides. But speaking of left-wing violence, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to tread carefully now. <laughs> let's, let's tread very, very lightly here. Um, I have spoken with a number of people, say, in... Uh, hardline Marxist-Leninist, uh -huh. anti-revisionist groups, uh, both IRL and online. These uh, these what, groups really exist. Like, uh, what sort of tendencies are we talking I about? I don't know. We got Not some hoaxists out there. Some hoaxists and We got Hoja. some, uh, I don't want to get too specific. <laughs> but, some uh, Jucheists. Like, uh, speaking to some of these people lately, I've had a few moments where I'm like, oh, fuck, is that how we sound to people <laughs> when we talk about this stuff? Because you sound crazy and maybe like you're a cop like basically the idea that all right we have 10 years until uh the world descends into fascism and horror which you know is that, possible yeah that may or may not but be true. uh also i feel like the descent might be a little slower than they think it is but anyway the idea that we have 10 years to train organize and arm the working class in some sort of a organized professionalized kind of red army scenario mm. Uh, where everyone's got, uh, you know, Kalashnikovs or whatever to uh, basically fight a traditional kind of insurrectionary mm. social revolution. A set, set piece battles on the, on the field. Yeah. Now, this appeals to me for obvious reasons, but it also strikes me as a little bit LARPy. And uh, I think if we're looking at an advanced uh, capitalist democracy, quote unquote, um, I think the Jacobin line holds some water that that kind of revolution has never succeeded in an advanced capitalist democracy and probably never will. Although we certainly are getting less advanced and less democratic, <laughs> if not um, if not less capitalist as yeah. time goes on. And, and the reason why the whole political violence question is important, why we put that up at the top is because it's something that because this cycle exists now between left and right, between the state and protesters, now that it's back, we have to confront the way that we feel or we understand political violence. So calling for a set piece 20th century revolution uh, with two sides fighting a civil war for territory is uh, certainly a form of political violence. It certainly is a way to organize oneself, right? It's not 
it's it's not even the rejection of violence, but it's the accepting of violence and saying that violence is good and something that we could do better than the bad guys, right? Yeah. But you're saying that the Hojas line might be a little bit uh, overboard. It might, it might need some tweaking. Right. I might I might like to go in there, like be the McKinsey consultant for the Hojas and uh, tweak tweak some of their approaches here and there just to keep it really, you know, nimble and synergistic <laughs> for the modern landscape. Well, I think uh, the one thing I will take from Envar Hoja in Albania in the 20th century is pillbox, baby. Pillbox is all over the place. Bunkers for all. That is the that's a good way to prepare, but also potentially to do revolutionary action. Yeah, I mean, I've said uh, many times on the show that we need a left prepper movement. and uh, Who better than Hoja? And, like, that's not even necessarily political stance. Like, I feel like every intelligent person with the means to do so is building a bunker right now. Yeah. So maybe maybe that should be part of our 10-year plan for the Antifada compound. We live in apartments right now. Who knows? Maybe we'll <laughs> take one in, like, Prospect Park or something. Yeah, sure. That, that sounds great. So, uh... I also have some issues with the idea that a uh, even if we could achieve it amid this uh, modern day surveillance state, that some kind of professionalized red army is really the way we want to go. Considering uh, historically, when you have a, uh, a vanguard party with a military arm and they win, that doesn't lead to the kind of socialism from below mm. that I think we advocate on this show, right? And this goes back to debates we've had between uh, Rosa and Lenin, uh, you know, queen, girl boss of the week, girl boss of the century, Rosa Luxemburg. Um, the idea, I think, on the part of some orthodox Marxists is that a revolution will happen when a vanguard party plans and executes one and when the existing power structures that would normally prevent it from happening have decayed to the point where they can't anymore. Mm. However, I think uh, the kind of spontaneity that Rosa wrote about very convincingly and that we now see reflected in ideas like communization theory um, holds more water in the modern world. And I think if we want to see the kind of mass uprisings that would lead to some sort of uh, revolutionary overthrow, like, yeah, that sounds crazy. It all sounds crazy. <laughs> like the Red Army, obviously crazy. Reforming the existing system, holding the police accountable. Pretty fucking crazy. Also crazy. Yeah. So I'm not saying that the communization idea or the yeah. idea that it's got to be regular ass people uh, fighting for themselves and their own lives, not this like trained professional army. Um, it's it's not that it's not crazy. It's just that the other options are also crazy. And given that, I would rather choose the one that is more likely to lead to the kind of world I want to see. That's fair. My thoughts on this are, again, if political violence is going to be one of the tenors of our time, uh, that we should not celebrate it, nor should we condemn it, whether that's looting or whether that's shooting back when a right-wing person shoots at you. It's not, it's not something that I would call for, but it's not something I would say don't do because all the situations, all the circumstances are different. It's something that we need to look at as something that arises out of the social conditions and economic and political conditions right now, this triple crisis, as we call it, right? There's no outlet for anything to be solved, right? The political system has foreclosed that completely. The economic system has foreclosed that completely. And the ecological 
catastrophe that's coming makes it so that we can't even go on as normal moving forward without massive, massive uh, structural changes happening. So you have to accept that political violence is going to be part of these things. Um, contra all the other theories that you were talking about, I think that um, we're going to start seeing some sort of breakdown. We're going to start seeing something that looks like maybe Syria. We're going to start to see in this highly federalized American system, parts starting to break off and, and pieces starting to not fit together and areas starting to maybe become autonomous. And in that instance, um, AutoZone. In, the, in, the, in a much larger and, uh, and less densely packed AutoZone, uh, it's going to be very, very important, I think, for people to have these sort of spontaneous uh, activities and also to be very much rooted in community because preparedness, of course, is so much about solidarity and working with others and cooperating with one another mm -hmm. uh, com compared to like the right wing version of that. That's right. Um, I also want to go back to something we were talking about earlier because... I think there is still a fundamental misunderstanding on the part of a lot of liberals at the of, about the purpose that the police serve in our society. What time are we up to? No, we're good. We're good. We're good. Yeah. All right. Um, because you know when you're talking about uh, the right wing militias and you're talking about the cops, um, like it's it's perceived as a problem. And I think Sam said this on the majority report the other day. Um, they perceive segments of the population as their enemy when they're supposed to be protecting and serving them. Right. And if you think that the purpose of the police is to protect and serve, then that is, you know, that's fucking out of whack. If you think that the function of the police is to uh, oppress surplus populations and keep down the left and keep down the working class in this country, then they are correct to perceive these folks as their enemies, no? Yeah, I mean, all the talk out there about hordes of urban thugs running around and, you know, breaking down law and order, that is the great fear on, like, a large part of the American populace is things falling apart and the very little that they have being taken away from them. So you have to understand that fear, and I think that fear gets weaponized by the worst forces in our society who want a kind of law and order that's even more ruthless and brutal than the law and order that we saw for the last 50 years. They want to see the National Guards in their breaking head because they want to protect the system that's falling apart. There is no, ultimately, there's no way that this can go on the way that things are going. But as I said, everything has been foreclosed upon. All the all the chances to get out of it in like a peaceful, reformed way have been foreclosed upon. So these people are actually an antenna. These people who are out there yelling about law and order and social breakdown, they, unlike the liberals, actually understand that there's a problem. It's just that there are fucking enemies. Yeah. And they ultimately want to smash the working class, smash the, the people they consider lesser than them, even more than the cops and the National Guard are doing already. Yep, like Idris said in his talk, um, the only segment of the of the American media landscape that recognizes this thing that just happened as an uprising, as an insurrection, is the right. And it's certainly overblown. I think they're overstating the threat posed to the system 
buy this movement as it currently exists. Sorry, but anything, that's just the facts. <laughs> anything is a threat to them because that quiescence for the last 40, 50 years is what they wanted. They wanted an underclass that was on its back and not fighting back. So anything that we do, anything we have done, and certainly things we do in the future, they will find revolting because it's everything that they hate. They hate the kind of freedom that we have to offer, and they hate people who they consider lesser than them, a lower class, rising up and doing things that they're not supposed to do. Dead ass. That's, that's exactly what they fear. So and at least they're honest about it. So here's one more question that I wrote down. You know, take it or leave it. Sure. I've heard it said on other podcasts, perhaps, that um, the, the fact that they're responding with such violence and such terrible, really shock and awe tactics from the far right to the state, particularly the state, right? The kinds of charges they're hitting protesters with yeah. are, you know, they're trying to put them in jail for life for some of these things. Um, they're saying that this is not evidence that this movement is a threat because the movement is weak. It's evidence that the state, in fact, is weak. And when you're weak, you go after the low-hanging fruit. Now, do we... I, I think I partially agree with that in that it is certainly not evidence that we pose a threat right now. However... I don't think it's necessarily any kind of evidence that the state is particularly weak or strong, right? Because whether the state is weak or strong, um, it's strong enough to crush the opposition that currently exists. Right. And um, I don't think that tells us uh, very much in particular about the capacity of our enemy because they really, uh, it's like using a boulder to crush an ant at this point. We, it doesn't really tell you how big the boulder is. You know, you can crush an ant with a little rock. You can crush an ant with a giant boulder. Like the, the, the full extent of it has yet to be seen. Yeah, this is, this is where the talk of kind of social breakdown meets with the, the larger question for me. Because I had mentioned Syria before, and Syria isn't Oof. a very happy story. Yikes. That's, <laughs> that's a, a yikes for me. That's a, it's a big old yikes for me also. I think that because... Well, it's a cautionary tale, right? Sorry, I totally stepped on your line, but no, no. it's a cautionary tale of what happens when you have a, a social movement with some momentum that is not prepared for the level of violent backlash and chaos that could ensue. Right, and not unified behind a cause, uh, you know, or, or, is, or is only loosely affiliated in the negative sense of wanting to get something gone like we're not even at that point in the united states but again when you have these social economic political conditions that cannot be confronted ones that uh in under covid and ones that under economic catastrophe literally cannot be faced by the state and the politicians literally say there's nothing we want to do about about it let alone can do about it then any any sort of peaceful outlet just fades away at that point in time and i think that we're in the beginning of that it's not me calling for that but i think that's just the way yeah. that things are this political violence needs to be seen within that and it's very similar to like you saw with um all the checks and balances that we've been told about for our entire lives about how the constitution created this finely tuned government with three different branches and each of them checks the other one yeah that 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 looked like this this uh this brick wall that this powerful structure of codes and laws and norms until one guy gets in there and just starts not following the norms and not doing the contact you <laughs> do this sort of shit that you that people have been doing for 250 mm -hmm. years and now we're starting to see that the legitimacy of the entire state gets put in question when all of a sudden somebody says there are no norms there are no checks i'm going to do what i want bye bye norms <laughs> bye bye the, the same thing 
starts to happen, I think, and we've, I think, seen this over the last few months. We're going to see it even more. The same thing happens uh, in terms of the consent of the governed, right? I think ever since Ferguson was sort of the, the signal crisis of this, but then the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent mass protests across the country have been showing more and more millions of people that, A, we can do something, we, we can affect this on the streets, and B, this whole system is not, uh, is, is not um, omnipotent. It's not all-powerful. People can do, can, people can rise up, and people can come together. So once that kink is in the armor, then I think that it's just a, a continuing sort of process now of people testing the limits of what the state can do. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think the way that things are going right now, uh, the cracks in state power and the erosion of norms are most likely to collapse in a direction that we might not necessarily like. Yeah, no. Which brings us Another to the question. Another reason not to call for armed uh, insurrection. Right yeah. <laughs> or, or like the accelerationist yeah, option no. where you're like voting for Trump to bring on the rev. <laughs> We've never been those kinds of people. That's dumb and stupid. Yeah. Don't do that, folks. But it does bring up the question... You know, just in the just in the few minutes we have left, small question: What is to be done? And I, can I think that, that brings easy. us to the question of uh, organization, perhaps maybe yeah. a maybe a, a party or party-like structure. You got any thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. I I've been talking about this world historical world systems theory type shit for years now on this show, uh, and also been posting about online. How much is overdetermined, right, by these large, massive structures? The big O. Yeah, and I've tried to. I've talked with Terrence, and I've talked with uh, Matt about all the these these vast structures that uh, that really set the course of our lives day in and day out, and really the course of where this country and this world looks to be headed for the next fifty years. And part of that, I wasn't trying to be a doomer. Right. I wasn't trying to depress people. But what I was trying to show is that, in my opinion, in our opinions, uh, there's no reformist. There's no easy way out. There's no capitalism fixing itself. There's no sort of um, economic or structural reforms that can be pushed through by politicians that's going to create another regime of accumulation that's sufficient to bring us back to the glory days of capitalism of 50 years ago. Right? Hashtag Bernie would not have won. <laughs> but Ber you know, and then Bernie too, right? Was when Bernie lost again, it was me being shocked because this pendulum has always swung back and forth in the United States between left populism and right wing libertarian psychopathy. And I really thought that it made sense for somebody like Bernie to come in and save capital for its own sake. But it, that mm -hmm. hasn't happened. That, mm -mm. <laughs> that, that off-ramp to our future has not happened. Sorry. And so this is all in preparation to say that for most of my life now, I've been on the left for 25 years, I've had this sort of conception that I've gone through studying the history and reading and just kind of my own view of the world where the sorts of organizations, the sorts of movements and structures necessary to confront capital will emerge from the political economy of that given moment, right? That every particular period um, has um, 
throws up certain institutions, working class institutions, uh, that are necessary in order to confront it. Almost like emergent, almost like imminent to those structures. Mm. Someone should name a DSA caucus after that. <laughs> These emergent properties, yeah. It's a little late in the day, and this is a bit of self-crit for myself right here. It's a little late in the day to be saying, oh, well, where are those emergent organizations? I'm where sure are those they'll be here any second. Boy, we could really use those right now. Um, yeah, I, get on it, someone who's not me. <laughs> I, I'm so, just, I'll, I'll, I'll oversee it. Uh, I'll supervise from my armchair. <laughs> I'll tell I'll, you what you're doing wrong. I'll be the foreman and tell you to move it a little to the left and a little to the right. No, like I, I think that so much so much of our problem these days is that we flit from crisis to crisis, that there's just one event that we're reacting to after another. Uh, there's a series of things that happen to us. We are, in a sense, objects of history at this point in time. By that, I mean, you know, the anti-capitalist left, but then the working class in general in the United States and across the world, we're objects of history. We're being worked upon. I think that now is the time, and I'm going to do this in my life, and I, I ask you to do the same thing, that we need to start talking about these really serious and difficult issues of, yes, political violence, what it means to us, how we how we navigate that, you know, in our in our lives, but also what a revolution would look like. What how how can we create the structures necessary to this moment? And I think that it's it's long past time that we start actually doing that. Yeah. And 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 how do we have a revolutionary politics that is not LARPy that uh, takes the idea of revolution seriously um, and that does not turn into social democracy immediately upon contact with reality, as Chuang so eloquently put it. Or a weird uh, vanguardist sectarian cult. As it turns out, it's not easy, folks. <laughs> yeah. It's the million dollar question. I don't ultimately. claim to have all the answers, but uh, I really do think we need a new synthesis honoring the uh, actually existing socialism of the past while being very honest about the ways in which it has failed and the things that we would hopefully like to do better the next time around. Um, maybe some of it is just historical contingencies uh, that we've fell into sort of authoritarian versions of socialism in the past. That's being optimistic, assuming, you know, when we win, that's what happens. Um, but where was I going with this? You know the thing. Yeah, the thing where the the thing goes. Well, in we history. need we need a you plug it into the history into the history machine. Yeah, just and it goes. if the revolution isn't working, just turn it off and turn it back on again. Give it a little technical tap on the side. Ninety percent <laughs> of the problems can really be solved by that kind of <laughs> troubleshooting, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, like <sighs> things would seem so dark and so dire right now. If it wasn't for the millions upon millions of people in the United States and around the world who are in struggle right now, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders movement, we've always said from the very, very beginning, it's a social barometer. Just like when you start to see masses take to the streets, that's a social barometer. That's giving us a, a, a test of the sort of pressures going on in society and the things that people are struggling towards. It's like a free stress test. Yeah, exactly, like Scientology um, <laughs> or something. Which is, you know, widely known as Marxism for idiots, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you broke my train of thought with that, but so that's good. I'm imagining holding on to those tin cans and like <laughs> talking about Rosa versus uh, Lenin or something Well, like isn't that. that what Comrade Communicator was doing at yeah. our show? 
Well, the, there you go. So it's either Hojaism or, or Posadism, as always. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the Dolphins. But yeah, I, I think that there is, there, there are, there's the nucleus exists right now. The nucleus in the streets, and I think the nucleus that exists in the detritus of uh, the social democratic movement. Good word. And, thank you. In the Anglo-American world and elsewhere. And I think, without being corny, too corny anyways, <laughs> you guys out there, you listening to this show, are that nucleus, right? The, the study groups uh, that you do, the people that you organize with, that is a hell of a good place to start. And it's certainly not nothing. That's right. The subject of history, turns out, <laughs> it's the girl reading this. <laughs> so I don't think I could, I could leave it with anything better than that. Should we go to the uh, No Evil Foods interview? I think we should. All right. See you on the other side, folks. With uh, three former employees of No Evil Food, which is a vegan food company that uh, turned out to be kind of kind of union busty for a company so allegedly woke. Um and their names are Megan, John, and Josh. And we might have another one. Uh, we might have another comrade, Courtney, jumping on a bit in a bit. But she's experiencing some technical difficulties. So, uh, hey, guys. Thanks for joining me. Hey. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Of course. Uh, I mean, this is extremely my shit because it combines two <laughs> things I like. Namely, unions and... Uh, vegan food, which is, uh, I was vegan for a pretty long time and I'm still mostly vegan. So I buy a decent amount of fake meat. I also enjoy, uh, seeing the, uh, wokeness of brands get, uh, punctured when uh, push comes to shove. So let's, uh, let's start at the beginning. Um, what was y'all's experience like working for no evil foods and why did you decide to try to organize with the UFCW? Uh, so I have been working in the restaurant industry for about 20 years, and um, I'd really started thinking about the efficacy of, you know, handling meat products. I mean, and it got to be something that I was more and more interested in slash tired of, like, working with animals, like, with dead flesh, basically. And um, I wanted to find something that was different, something that would, like, align more with my, um my philosophical and uh, political views. So when I stumbled across the, upon No Evil Foods, it looked like a great pairing. Like I was like, cool, I can work uh, this company. Obviously they, they put a lot of effort into taking care of their employees. And they also have uh, an awesome mission of like, you know, environmentalism and uh, you know, no cruelty to animals. And that was very appealing to me. From the moment I started working there, uh, like there was a unionization drive uh, with the UFCW that uh, employees who had been there like since the beginning of the company um, had been organizing, but it, it was kind of losing steam. So I get hired there, and it took them like a month to like onboard me. And then what ended up happening was the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working there my first week, and somebody's like, "Hey, you want to sign a union card?" And I'm like, "Absolutely, heck yeah." And then there was the the meeting where they they originally had a four day a week ten hour uh, four days uh, ten hour shift uh, work week, which I was like, hey, this is great because I get to spend more time with my family. And then um, 
they pulled the rug right from underneath underneath us. They were like, oh, we're going to go to eight-hour shifts five days a week. And there have been employees that had been with them for, like, you know, five years since the very beginning who had built their whole, like, you know, lives around the schedule. And they couldn't work there anymore. I mean, there was one gentleman who was taking their uh, partner to uh, breast cancer treatments, uh, like, Thursday through through Sunday after he got off of work. And he was like, hey, I can't, you know you make an exception for me so I can, you know, keep on doing this? And um, the response he got from uh, the owner was, uh, well, this wasn't going to work for everybody. Boo. Yeah. So uh, there was pretty much like instant, like just uh, uh, then like the next like four weeks, basically most of the, there's turnover in the staff. Like most everybody who had worked there like left. So that kind of like could uh, put a kibosh on the union drive. And uh, we were it, it was kind of like floating around like I had had contact with the UFCW, but um, it wasn't until uh, I want to say right around like, uh, November when um, it started picking up steam again because they were trying to make us work all the holidays. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, like it was like they they. The, the office staff, they, they got Friday of Thanksgiving off, but we only got Thanksgiving off, and then we had come in that Friday. Yeah, and Christmas Eve, too, if I remember Oh, right. yeah. Yeah, and they were going to have us work uh, Christmas Eve, and like, just, like was it just Christmas Day they were going to let us have off? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah because, well, we got to meet our production quotas, which it would be annoying, too, because, I mean, it would be, like, things that were completely out of our control. It'd be, like, equipment failure. Because yeah, they would, yeah. they would um, instead of like purchasing equipment that like would be made like industrial mixers, they were buying like a like you know I mean don't get me wrong, Hobarts are a good brand. I use them in kitchens, but they're not meant to be ran like seventeen hours a day. So you know we'd have like these this equipment breakdown, and then you know it would halt production. So then, then what did you do? Well. Um, one of our uh, coworkers who still had a contact with the, the union reps from the UFCW, um, they're like, "Hey, let's start, let's start organizing. Let's, you know, we got plenty of grievances about things, and you know, let's organize." So we started organizing, and uh, you know, along the way, uh, you know, uh, John and Megan started working there. They started getting involved with it too, and um, you know, we were really trying to push for it. And I'm not wanting to badmouth them, but um, part of the reason why we had such a, a, a failure, I think, was that like there was a critical time where if we'd done it in December, when all you know everybody was like getting really mad, um, we could have had that union union uh, 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 drive clutch like no problem at all. But unfortunately, um, because the holiday season got in the way, um, it got pushed back i'm trying to remember was the uh uh vote like early february or late january uh it was the actual vote was february 13th yeah yeah so yeah. like it, it gave them plenty of time for it gave plenty of time for like people to forget you know that that oh yeah hey wait a minute they're they're not our friend you know yeah i mean they tried to make us w work on christmas eve but they gave us a free cookie before we went to the meeting so <laughs> yeah, problem uh, yeah, solved. The cookies. 
So uh, I read that the company hired a union-busting law firm called Constangi Brooks Smith and Perfetti, which had also busted unions at meat packing plants in the past and conducted these captive audience closed door meetings, a practice which is definitely sketchy, but legal under our current uh, crappy labor regime. Uh, what, what went on in these meetings? It was a lot of gaslighting. Uh, there was a lot of fear mongering over dues. There was a lot of fear mongering over uh, striking. Um, they did a whole meeting on collective bargaining and it was um, either all neutral or very negative. There was nothing I asked at, I actually asked at the meeting, um, you, you know, you're going over all these um, negatives of collective bargaining, but can you speak to any positives? And the person who was doing the presentation just flat out told me no. Yeah, and I'm like, not. are you telling me there's no benefits to collective bargaining? Are you kidding? Yeah, they also, um, during these meetings, they were absolutely awful. Um, so I think in total we had about um, seven, we had seven of them. And these meetings lasted anywhere from an hour to two hours. Uh, they would pull us off the production floor in the middle of the shift. Um, they, they felt like they were that important that we had to halt production to do them. Um, multiple people, I think all three of us that are on the call right now, um, including, and there were more people too, but people had asked to sit these meetings out, that they would rather be working, that they didn't want to attend them. And they were all mandatory. You didn't have an option. And they, they just played on everybody's fears. Um, they would give us like half articles talking about how the UFCW embezzled money during this year. When, if you'd look further into the story, you would see that the people were held accountable. There were multiple instances like this. Um, they played up on fears of sexual harassment, which is just disgusting in itself. You know, claiming that the UFCW um, would represent some sort of sexual harasser if a complaint was brought against them. And all the while they're telling us that they don't have to take up any cause that they don't want to. Lots of contradicting information about um, union dues being the financial equivalent of purchasing a house or a car and then turning around and having another manager tell us that, um, in their opinion, that it was a uh, paying dues is like paying for a shitty gym membership that you don't use. Just a lot of contradictory statements. They were extremely hostile, shoving 20 plus people into a really, really tiny room to give these presentations. Um, let's see, what else am I forgetting? I could probably sit here and talk about these meetings for hours. I read a quote going around where they actually tried to blame immigrants for the difficult conditions that American workers face on the job. Is is that a real quote? That is a real quote, and there is real audio that accompanies that quote. Um, that uh, The quote that you're talking about is uh, Mark McPeak. He is the uh, VP of Manufacturing. And in the middle of one of the meetings, he just went on some random tangent about how they, I don't know who he was referring to. They're the mysterious. Yeah, <laughs> they're they are importing people to come to the jobs. And I'm, we're all just sitting there like, when did this become a, a Fox News presentation? Like, what the hell are you talking about? That's not very woke of them. <laughs> no. So did, did the company's reaction surprise you yeah. in any way, considering their... Uh, social justice branding and alleged commitment to doing no evil i think the viciousness in which they uh went at us was uh fairly surprising to me 
I mean, you have Sadra, the uh, the co-founder. Um, like I'm wearing, I'm wearing like a, a punk band shirt, and she's hanging, literally hanging anti-union union propaganda while talking about her time living in the Bay. Hmm. Like I'm, I'm just like, wow, the cognitive disconnect here is just amazing. Yeah, I, I can second that too. I came to the company with very, very high expectations, and they were just completely shattered after these meetings. Um, I, I mean, as a, as just as a vegan alone, I just, you know, I was appalled by them telling me that this is a company that also represents Smithfield. So, or I'm sorry, this is a union that also represents Smithfield. So why? Why would you want to be associated with them? And and I'm just like it's also, being a, a meatpacking plant. Yeah, yeah. So uh, UFC 1208, um, which is the local that we were gonna uh, unionize with, also represents Smithfield here in in um, North Carolina. And they made that into a whole thing where it's like, well, you know, why would we want to be in bed with our competitors? And I, I and the plant manager um, who is also vegan said, uh, well, I wouldn't want to be associated with them because you know they're they're meat packers and you know we're a, a plant meat company. And 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 I raised my hand and I was like, so what? They're the people who are, are are working at these places. They deserve to have a union too. I mean, yeah, sure, shut Smithfield down. I hate that place, but. Until it's until it's shut down, give the people who are working in those awful conditions a friggin' union. And just because it's the same union, I mean, the, the UFCW is the sixth largest union in the friggin' country. So to say that it's a meatpackers union is just friggin' ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, they they have representation in dispensaries in California. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and also, I mean, like you know, the, their stated mission is to you know, make vegan food more accessible to people. And I mean, that would just be one more thing to bring in be like, hey, we are now get we are we are bringing veganism to unions that were traditionally representative of meatpacking. You know, that would be uh, that would be a net good. Yeah, but you know, that would mean also that they would be subject to safety inspections that they probably would have a hard time with. (laughs) Because you know, when you start talking about like conditions, um, you know, they would have somebody inspecting packages coming off the conveyor belt that like instead of like having a proper um, like stool for somebody to sit in, um, it would be like um, a, a bucket flipped over. Which I, I can imagine after eight hours would not be good for your back. Yeah, actually, funny story about that, too. Um after after you left josh um somebody was working on one of the machines uh sitting on some kind of uh it was like this bike kind of a thing i i don't even really it was something that was, it was a gardening uh, bench it was like a gardening bench that they brought in for one of the machines to sit at the end of it and and this person just fell off it and they already had a like a broken arm so that just made it even worse and it's, it's things like that like why would you why would you even have that in there like a chair with wheels at the end of a machine that it just doesn't make any sense. So fast forward to the vote. Um, the union ultimately lost. Uh, what do you think contributed to that? Was it just all the, the fear mongering that they did in these closed door meetings? I think it was a combination of, of a large number of things. I do think that, um, the, the captive audience meetings really played a massive role in convincing people that a union would not help them or represent them or do anything positive. So I think that was a major part of it. Um, 
I mean, as far as criticism on our end goes, uh, you know, I've said this um, openly all the time. Like for me personally, um, I felt like, or look in retros in retrospect, looking back on it, um, I wish that we had taken a more offensive approach as opposed to defense. You know, mind you, at these meetings, um, we're sitting there trying to combat all of the misinformation that they're throwing at us. So while we're spending all this time, like, doing research to to combat all of their misinformation, what we kind of missed the mark on was finding out what we could collectively demand as a group and have a comprehensive list, like, this is what we want, this is what we want to see changed, um, that kind of thing where, so I, I don't know, just playing defense the whole time kind of, kind of, I, I think it contributed to, uh, why we lost, uh, in the way that we did. Um, but I, I, so I don't know. I, I think that was, uh, I don't know. Both of those factors really played into it. That is unfortunately, uh, not uncommon to hear. I, I myself was uh, the primary person trying to organize what was ultimately a failed unit drive at a media company where I used to work. So uh, I have a lot of empathy and solidarity for you on that front. Um, so, yeah. Uh, all I would also. Oh, I'm sorry if I could interject. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the thing, too, is, is like, um, I mean, and like, I, I feel like I'm saying nothing but negative things about them. They were really nice guys. But I think that there was like, you know, they could have had a little bit better of a, like a broad battle plan. And like, hey, take this information, because ultimately the worker is responsible for you organizing their workspace. But, you know, there's so much stuff that we were trying to learn on the go that if we, we like, you know, had more of a, a, a checklist of things to do coming into it. Um, I think our success would have been a lot better um, if anybody's out there trying to organize their workspace, you know, make sure to ha assign tasks to people, you know, like you have like one person whose job it is, is to like work on inoculation or, and they, they work with somebody else on the, on the, uh, say you got like a second shift, um, they work with a, another person that, and they work on inoculation strategies and then you have another person who's countering propaganda, you know, like organize, like organized organizing, you know? Yeah. So everything that we've been talking about up till now happened before the COVID crisis hit. Um, and then COVID came along and made everything even shittier for yes. workers. <laughs> so uh, I read in some of the reporting that the company made some accommodations, but they were woefully insufficient. So you guys did what you could and you circulated a petition asking for the company to do better. Um, what did they initially do for you? What did you want them to do better? And how did they respond to this petition? Um, well, before you get into the petition, you got to take it back just a little bit prior to that. So, um, like around mid-March, they, uh, everybody was understandably freaking out because COVID, I mean, we're reading about COVID. We don't all really understand COVID and we just see people are getting sick. It's, it's, con it's spreading in these confined areas we're in a confined area where social distancing is not always possible. And so people were bringing up these concerns to management and that culminated in them basically rolling out this grand plan where they basically offered, uh, they gave everybody 24 hours and they gave everybody three options. And, um, 
one of those options was to stay with the company and get um, hazard pay after 90 days of perfect attendance. The other one was to um, quit, and then you could have the option to return, uh, like you could reapply. And then the third option was to quit and uh, basically never be able to come back, and you'd get a three-week buyout um, for the price of signing this ridiculous um, four- or five-page legal document that basically says that you're not allowed to talk about your experience at the company and you can't sue them for any uh, violations of things like the NL NLRA or the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act or the Civil Rights Act or um, pretty much anything under the sun that you would sue an employer for. So those of us who ended up staying um, ended up passing around a petition for um, – hazard pay to be immediate because we were all saying, well, the hazard isn't in 90 days. The hazard is now. So why are we waiting 90 days to get hazard pay? And um, the night before um, we were about to turn this petition in, which had a majority of signatures on it from first and second shift, this was the first time that both of the shifts had actually seen some cohesiveness and some unity and some solidarity since the union drive, which was amazing. Um, the night before we were about to turn the petition in, I was pulled off the production floor by the uh, head of HR, and I was questioned about the petition. Uh, I was told that I was identified as one of four people who was behind the petition, that it was making people feel uncomfortable, and that um, – uh, I, oh, I was also asked if the petition had anything to do with the union, which is – if you know anything about labor law, all of what I just said is not legal. Um, and then the next day – uh, they basically just rolled out this temporary bump in pay. They called it like hero pay or we love our team pay or some crap like that. Ugh. And and um, they just they didn't acknowledge the petition. They didn't acknowledge any of that. They just said that they'd been you know monitoring the activities of other businesses in the area and this, that and the other. Um, so that's how ha that's how the, the first petition kind of came about. And then um, some of you got fired after circulating this petition, right? Um, what were the official reasons they gave, and what do you think the real reasons were? Um, so out of the three of us on this uh, call here, I was the only one who was fired, and the official reason I was given was um, failure to social distance, which... Heard that one before. Exactly, yeah. exactly. From a much bigger company, and uh, it... It's just funny because, you know, this is supposed to be a company that's not like that. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I've often heard people say that it's worse in some ways, more exploitative to work for a small business where people are somewhat passionate for the work that they're doing and the boss acts like they're your friend. Maybe you have a more personal relationship with them versus a big business where the relationship between labor and capital is laid much more bare. Um would you say that that holds true in your experience? So at first, uh, they really were trying to like foster this whole like, hey, we're all in this together sort of uh, mentality. But as the unionization drive happened and they started expanding the management team when uh, Mark McKinnon got hired there, it was a pretty quick culture shift. I mean, like, um, what was Becky's title? Uh, Becky's title was uh, plant manager. Yeah, plant manager. Um, when Becky became uh, the plant manager, all of a sudden, uh, no, we're not a family anymore. Or maybe you're a family when they're trying to get you to do what they want you to do. But then when you're asking for stuff, it's uh, a little different. 
Yeah. Man, I yeah. sorry, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, like it, it was like, um, and it, it was pretty shady too how they were acting. Like they were, it felt like they were intentionally trying to pit employees against each other. Like, um, you know, I, I'm somebody who cares passionately about like people who like have been in the uh, prison system, like them being able to like reintegrate back into society because you know I think that instead of like making it difficult for somebody who has had a difficult past maybe they need to like have a boost into like being integrated in community and society um so they would hire people who had a record and then they started using that against them by saying like oh well hey if the union uh, gets hot you know comes in they might do a background check on you and decide that they don't want you to work here hey and then like going up to people who um were probably who probably smoked weed and be like oh yeah the union's gonna start drug testing you that's in that's crazy yeah fact like, check unions don't do that yeah yeah and i'd point out like these guys represent dispensaries yeah it's also nuts considering i just took a look at the no evil foods instagram earlier today and they've got statements in solidarity with the rebellion for black lives or whatever seems a bit hypocritical how many people who who are who are black that are uh, management, like upper management? Yeah. Oh, I, uh, I mean, I, I don't know about that, but um, they, I just feel like everything that No Evil posts that's supposedly woke, or taking on a socially progressive. Um, like stance or anything like that. It it just feels like more marketing to me. It's all very performative. Um, mm. Yeah, it, it's just, it's extremely performative because you can't care about just one social issue. If, if your social consciousness doesn't extend to supporting the working class and, um, Sorry, if, if it doesn't extend to the working class and the struggle of the working class and, you know, you can't recognize um, a union at a supposedly progressive company, is the company really that progressive? Yeah, their their leftist values basically end where the needs of their investors begin. Well said. Um, I got to give you guys a shout out. I don't know who's responsible for all these images, but... I find them very effective parodying um, the the sort of social justice labeling. I also enjoyed the cartoon where animals are protesting outside with signs that say things like humans have rights too. So shout out to whoever did those. Yeah, whoever's doing that's doing a real good job. <laughs> so uh, what have you learned from this experience and what advice would you give? I guess we've kind of covered this already but what advice would you give to other workers who are trying to do a similar thing at their job um so my advice to somebody who's uh doing a unionization drive um is uh before you start like filing paperwork with the national labor relations board build a tight circle like yeah. people that you can trust um you know because like it, it was getting a little despondent for me because there's like maybe like some tepid um there's like you know like courtney was about it but you know they were they were pretty good and like keeping us separated and um 
you know, having having a support system to fall back on. Like, uh, especially if you're spread out over different shifts, definitely having a support uh, a support network to keep morale going. Also, um, being like making sure that you have like, you know, everybody's got assigned tasks. You know, like, hey, I want you to like inoculate. Hey, I want you to, because like, you know, toward, especially towards the end there, it kind of felt like, okay, well, everybody's just sick of talking about it. And I didn't want. I felt like I didn't want to like talk to people about it and like just annoy them out of being into the union. Yeah, and and one way that uh, bosses discourage unions is by dragging it out, making it take a long time, because uh, people are busy and people are tired, and it's a lot of work. And the longer you have to do it for, the harder it is. I think usually. Oh yeah. Yeah, kind of what Josh is saying too. I mean, just. The people who ended up voting yes were part of that tight circle that Josh is talking about, and that's kind of what we started doing, and maybe too late, and that was part of, you know, maybe that was part of what went wrong. Um, I would also advise anybody who goes through this or is going through this to utilize the recording option on your phone and record everything. Like, record every meeting, record every interaction you have with management, record every phone call you have with management, record everything, um, because that turns out to be very, um, very important if uh, things kind of go the way that it's gone for us. And uh, there's also um, a book, to uh, Confessions of a Union Buster by Martin Levitt which is really, really, really good. It's basically the same exact playbook that they used uh, on us. Um, I've been reading it, and I'm just looking through that and then looking and thinking about what happened with No Evil, and it's just identical. Every, Almost every single tactic that, they, this, that this union buster used in his 30 years um, doing this is basically what was used against us. Know your enemy. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, uh, also, I wanted to add, like, even if you can't record something, even contempor- com- contemporaneous uh, notes uh, can be a handy thing to have. Like, you know, just like type in your phone real quick. Like, I spoke to this manager at this time about this subject. Yeah, these were the things that we talked about. So, like, you know, even having those to like fall back on um, still will help you out. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like. From every angle, this is a PR nightmare for them. And I don't know why they thought that it wouldn't be or that they could get away with this. But I don't know. Maybe they're right. I guess we'll see. Um, to be continued. Uh, yeah. So before I did the research for this interview, this is probably a digression. <laughs> but I was wondering if the Zapatistas knew that their name and image was being used for branding purposes because the company has a Zapatista sausage. It's like fake chorizo, uh, which I've actually had and find it, you know, decent. But um, I did a little research. I saw that they were donating donating some of the proceeds from these Zapatista sausages to the San Diego-based group uh, Schools for Chiapas, which does work in Chiapas, I guess. And I was like, hmm, okay. Then I saw the organization made a comment, I think after all of this bad PR came out, saying, we do not condone the exploitation of the Zapatista cause for marketing 
and were unaware that we had been listed as allies. We will be sharing our course of action. We are in communication with the Asheville Solidarity Network. Thanks for drawing this to our attention. So I don't know. It seems a little shady to me because if that organization, which is based in San Diego, was receiving money from the sales of the Zapatista sausages, I feel like they must have known about this before. Um, and it also made me wonder if the Zapatistas themselves were aware because this doesn't seem like something that they would sign on to. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, rumor has it from employees who still work there that they're changing the name, um, that they're actually changing the El Zapatista name to uh, El Capitan. And yeah. of course, I don't have solid proof that it's because all of this came to light, but I like to think that that's what kind of led to it. You know, why else would you repackage everything and change the name of everything and change your entire marketing for one product? Um, but also as far as their, like their bad PR goes, like, I mean, to me, yeah, this, like, this absolutely looks like a PR nightmare. Like, I know if I was outside of this and reading about this, I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. I have plenty of other options, never buying that anymore. But, um, at the same time, like they could still do the right thing. They could still open up a dialogue with us. They could reach out. They could do literally anything other than double down on their behavior. And that's what they continue to do. Um, so I'm just really anxious and uh, curious to see how this NLRB ruling is going to go. Yeah, I don't think blocking and uh, censoring people, especially your customers, is an effective strategy. Uh, I think you should be listening to them. And I'm sp I'm speaking as if I'm speaking directly to the owners right now because I, I really do want them to do the right thing. Uh, they know that I came to this company specifically, to this the state of North Carolina for this job specifically, and I would still love for them to do, th to do the right thing. Um, whether they will, I don't know, but it, it, would, be, it would be a really nice turnaround. Yeah. Um, oh, and speaking of North Carolina, I just remembered one of the things you were organizing for was uh, worker protection in a right to work state, which seems, you know, pretty important. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. That is something I, I care about, too. Like, because I've only really worked in right to state works. And so, like, the idea of having, like, that protection, that that idea, like, you know, they had, they, you know, they have, they have decent enough perks for working there but you know they you know it started with like the the like changing of the weekly schedule um little by little they took take stuff away and like you know it, it you know the idea of having a union was like a great idea just you know for protection you know like hey they're not going to like try to pull anything shady or you know when it comes to like you know performance reviews they would like there are people who were working there that had their performance reviews bumped for like six months. Yeah, I was one of those people. Yeah, so I mean, like it, it's just like you know, no like radical schedule changes, uh, no like you know handling, you know, because if they say like, oh yeah, you get a performance review every ninety days to six months, and you get a, a corresponding raise with it, um, they're not. There's no pressure for them to actually do it. And, you know, they would say, oh, wait, we, we got health insurance for for employees that we're paying for. And that is the it was like the worst experience I've ever had in terms of like having any sort of like like health coverage, because I was still paying hundreds of dollars for doctor check 
checkups. It was catastrophe insurance. Like it was a sort of insurance where like I'd have to get into a major car accident to meet the deductible. The deductible was like four thousand to like four thousand or six thousand dollars. Yeah. Not yeah, and, good enough. Yeah, and they they were trying to use that that whole like, well they're doing this for us, and it's like, um yeah they're doing the bare minimum to take care of their employees. I mean, you know we're not we're not you know mules to be discarded. Yeah. There's yeah, also you... oh sorry. Oh go ahead. I was just gonna say there's also this major misconception that you know, you have to work in the most deplorable conditions in order to need a union, which is just ridiculous. Like when it boils down to it, no matter where you work, who you work for, whether your boss is a complete jerk, whether they're the coolest person you've ever met, the goal of the business and the bosses is to get as much profit for, uh, you know, spending as little as they can while maintaining as much profit as possible. Whereas as a worker or an hourly employee, you want to, you basically, you know, you just want the most reward for what you're putting into the company. And those two goals are just completely oppositional to each other, no matter how cool your boss is. And a union really offers an extra layer of protection for those people that are actually essential, that are actually making the company money by creating the product. And, you know, it just... It, it was just another tactic that they used, kind of painting it like, well, it's so great here. You know, why do you need a union? It's like, well, it doesn't matter if it's great here. Let's solidify it in a contract and protect ourselves from right to work laws. Yeah. By the time you realize it's it by the time you realize you need a union, it, it might be too late. And one of the things that they said to us at, at one of these meetings was, well, I mean, you can always bring back the union in another year. And yeah, sure you can. But in the meantime, you know, you're losing what I mean, between February 13th, when uh, the union election ended and maybe like June, they've lost almost 30 people. So they've lost a substantial amount of their production uh, workers. And so, I mean, yeah, you can bring the union back in another year, but you could also have it now and you could not have you could have that protection instead of waiting for it and, and waiting too late. Word. So. What's next for you guys? I know that some of you have lawsuits uh, pending for retaliatory firings. Um, are they still making efforts to organize or has that kind of died out? And what can people do to support you? Like, I remember like just the other day I was shopping for some groceries and I remember seeing the no evil foods. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy a different kind of fake meat because... <laughs> I just really don't like the idea of this. You know, maybe field roast is bad to their place too. I have no idea. I haven't looked into it. But like, do we need an organized boycott? Do we need a, a, a Twitter campaign? Do we need a crowdfund, a copyright infringement lawsuit, like Peter Thiel style for them using the Zapatista name? Like, what's uh, what what can we do? All of the above. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go. So yeah, I mean um. Okay, uh, I keep sorry. cutting you off. You go first, Josh. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm I'm sorry. I, I hate talking over people. Um, I think definitely um, holding them to account, you know, because they recuperate this socialist imagery and they they try to present themselves as this like woke, like quasi, like you know, socialist brand. Um, 
and like they think that activism you the only activism you need to do is with your money which no that's not that's not no i mean that's a small part of it uh i think holding them to account for their branding and how they, they their supposed values over to the reality of their actions is also a good 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 tack to take so i mean i'm, I'm very i'm very suspicious of boycotts in general but like i think like just a sustained Hey, no, this is what you say, but this is what this is what you say, but this is what you do is a much more effective way of calling out companies with these sort of practices. So there is a website, um, moevilfoods.com. Um, there is a current petition going on on that website that's basically demanding accountability from the company, um, asking that they recognize a union um, on their own, not you know forcing an election and going through the whole union busting process. Um, so definitely, I would recommend people go check that out, read about it. It also links to different podcasts, different um, news outlets that have covered this story since the start. So it's a really good resource if you want to read up more on it and kind of give us a virtual, you know, kind of shout out, show of support kind of thing. So that's really helpful. Um, again, with these NLRB cases, I think that... Um, if this comes back in our favor, that's going to be a major win for us because that's another part of holding them accountable for what they did and showing them that they just can't break labor law and get away with it. Um, on top of that, um, really, I just, at this point, I just really want them to do the right thing. Um, so, and to answer the other question, like I still, I like, we're still in contact with, um, some employees that work there. Uh, they did a pretty good job crushing any sort of organized effort or organizing drive, but there are still people there who were around for this entire, um, you know, the, since the beginning and all of that. So, you know, we're still in contact with some of those people. Um, I would call it, you know, it's it's one of those things where if this case comes back in the favor of John and Courtney and they potentially get the ability to come back there and show all of the employees there that if you stand up to these people that you can get the result that you want. Um, so really, it's we're kind of in hurry up and wait mode waiting for those results. Uh, but just continuing to demand accountability, I think, is the most important thing at this point. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, at the end of all of it, I do not regret one second of trying to organize that workspace. That was a, uh, that, you know, that is standing up for what you believe in. Even though it didn't work out, I am still proud of everybody that was involved. And, you know, we tried our best. You know, yeah. it, that, that's what's important is standing up for what you believe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um. I think that is all the questions that I have for you guys. Thank you so much for joining me and I wish you the best of luck in your continued crusade to protect not only animal rights, but the rights of human workers as well, because, you know, like the graphic said, humans are animals too. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you so yep. much for your time. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks guys. Uh, have a good night. You as well. I want to say bye and I've got a plan.